well. Uh, nice, beautiful morning. Uh, I do. I noticed from the back there, Marty's back with us. So good to see him back after recovering from a pretty serious accident. Uh, so it's good to have him back with us as well, and just pray that uh, his recovery, along with some other folks, would continue well. So. Uh, Turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John. I want to continue through that. Uh, John chapter 18. Uh, but I want to read from Luke 22. Before I do that, this was Jesus' word to his disciples and to Peter himself. In verse 28 of chapter 22 of Luke, he writes, you know, Jesus says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says directly to Peter, Simon, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. And he said to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Uh, that's, to me, one of the most uh, frightening and unsettling uh, narratives in Scripture uh, for Jesus to say to Peter, and I'll try to put myself in that place for him to say to him, there is the adversary wants to sift you. Uh, I mean, that's terribly frightening for me to think about that prospect because uh, I'm pretty sure that in my flesh and in your flesh, you'll be no match for the cleverness uh, of our adversary. And so it's really sobering to me. And that's what I wanted to look at, uh, just examining the life of Peter particularly and to some degree his disciples uh, as well. It's always amazing to me as I struggle during the week to try to uh, kind of do a sermon in a sentence, at least in my head, uh, how could I say the point of a message in a, in a single statement? And uh, I'm not always successful at that. Uh, in fact, you can ask Matt occasionally, he'll say, what's your title uh, of your sermon? And I, I'll tell him, I don't have one. You figure it out when you hear it. Uh, and we just kind of joke back and forth, what's your point? And I'll say, I have no point. Uh, well, it may come across like that sometimes, but that fault lies with me, not with the scriptures. Uh, but sometimes God does some really unique things. Uh, on the way to church this morning, uh, coming out Jane Sowers Road, uh, I witnessed something uh, in full view that I've never seen in all the years. How many of you have seen a dead squirrel in the road? Uh, probably not many people haven't, uh, but this morning I watched uh, in stark detail the demise of a squirrel, and I saw how that unfolded, and what happened is I was coming down the road, he ran out into the opposite lane, saw me coming, and like all wise squirrels, stopped, and he stood straight up and was looking at me as if he was waiting on me to come by before he crossed the road. He was fully aware of the danger my car presented to him. What he didn't know was there was a car coming from the other direction. And I, I watched the car hit him in the back of the head because he's standing straight up so the axle of this car hit him 
And I looked back in the rearview mirror and he was spinning circles in the road. So I fully expect on the way home, he'll be lying in that lane dead. And it drove home to me exactly what my message is today. Uh, you might be aware of the threat in front of you, but the one that'll get you will be the one you weren't aware of. And it seems to me that that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter. And Peter's bold. He sees the threat. He sees those coming against Christ and he's already made his resolve that I'm going even to death with you. And then Jesus saying, Peter, Satan wants to sift you. In other words, Peter, there's an enemy here that threatens to do great damage to you that you are not, you are not aware of in the moment. You think you have the enemy in sight, but I'm telling you that the enemy is coming up behind you. And I know he's coming. In fact, I have given him permission to do so. And the only thing that is going to hold you in this moment, Peter, is my intercessory prayer on your behalf. You will, you will come through this, but the sifting is going to happen. And if I could say it with my heart, that's the message this morning. Let me read chapter 18 in John I read this last week as well, but I want to back up and read in verse 1 and then uh, continue on that. There are a number of narratives in regards of the denials of Peter. In fact, if you do some studying, uh, it gets quite complicated at times to harmonize the gospel's portrayals of those. Um, just on the surface, you would almost think there were six denials. Uh, Mark says in one place that Jesus says to Peter, if you, uh, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And then the other gospel writers indicate that Jesus says, before the cock crows, uh, the implication being once. So, so there is com some complexity in harmonizing the events. But I think it's certain that G Peter denied Christ at least three times. And upon his third denial, he heard the cock crow in fulfillment of what Christ had said to him. So Peter beginning in verse 8. Of course, they come out to seek Jesus. Jesus says, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He tells them, I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Uh, John tells us this was to fulfill the scriptures, and so uh, they did, in fact, do that. In the meantime, Peter, in this bold move in verse 11, takes out his sword and I mean, verse 10 takes out his sword and, and defends Christ. He takes the servant's ear off, Malchus, and of course, Jesus uh, heals the ear and says to him in verse 11, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Uh, personally, I think the sifting's already underway in Peter's life. So we learn in verse 15, of course, they arrest Jesus, take him to Annas first and ultimately in the, in the household of Caiaphas there. In verse 15, it says of Simon Peter that uh, he had gained entrance through one of the disciples who knew Caiaphas or Annas. In verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. And so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. <clears throat> 
Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Now if you'll come with me to verse 25, it picks up the narrative again. Now Peter was standing and warming himself so they said to him, they, apparently those around the fire said to him, "Uh, you are not also one of the disciples are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us this morning as well as we examine uh, what the sifting looked like in Peter's life. And Lord, I pray that we might examine that to understand that uh, there can be a sifting in our own as well. Lord, I'm not saying this is an absolute reality for every believer, but Father, I do believe that there is a sifting that goes on and that it is permitted for your purposes as well. So help us to glean from Peter's life and from your activity in his life the truths that might be needful for us today. So help me in the communicating of that. Help those who are present in the hearing of it as well. Lord, help us to hold fast to what is true and consistent with your word and disregard all that is not. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I had nine. I'll probably race through these, but there are nine, if I don't get through them, there are nine specific steps involved in Peter's sifting. And that's important. Now you could subdivide those and, and my mind is inclined that way so I could maybe come up with 15 If I really subdivided them, so they're somewhat subdivided into nine, but you might could reduce it to more, but they're at least, uh, in my mind, I'm seeing or observing nine different aspects of Peter's sifting. Number one is that it is by uh, a providential word and work of God. In fact, Jesus actually predicts that. In Mark 14, 27, Jesus says to them, you will all, not just for Peter, but to this degree, all of them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so this sifting of Peter begins with a declaration of the word of God, the fulfillment of scriptures. In other words, you're all going to be scattered because the scriptures must be fulfilled. So there is a divine decree that is guaranteeing, I think ultimately for their preservation, that they would all be fleeing away from the shepherd. And so certainly in the disciples' life, this all begins with a word from God. In John 16, 32, Behold, an hour is coming, he says to them, and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. That hour was upon them. Now we're in the midst of the hour in Peter's life. But my point here is this is not a, that it's not a events are not unfolding contingent upon some decision that the disciples or even Peter make. This is a divine decree from God Almighty. It will take place this way. That's where the sifting begins. It's not happenstance. It's just not, not because Peter drew a lot of attention from Satan and Satan thought if he could take him out, all those things may play in there and be instrumental in some way. But the ultimate decisive factor in his sifting was a divine decree of God Almighty according to fulfilling the purposes of God. So if I just stop there and say, 
Okay, you're going to be sifted. It is the same ordained decree and providence of God Almighty who is bringing about the end of that sifting that is initiating the sifting for you and I. In fact, I have no doubt that the Satan and the adversary would love to have destroyed Peter outright, no, no, more, no less so than he would every believer in this room. He would love to silence your voice and your presence forever. He would love to mar and twist and distort and pervert the very image that you are created in so as to mock the God of uh, the real and true God. So I have no I know, have no excuses for some innocence in our adversary. He wants to destroy you. Peter says he is a roaring lion see, roaming about seeking in who it is that he can devour. He has no good designs for you, right? Simply because, not because you are somehow inherently valued, but because you are image bearers. Not his image, but the image of God. His sovereign. And so he hates us and has no good design. Specifically for Peter or John, Jesus prays this in John 18, 8 through 9. Jesus answered, I told you that then I am he. I've already read this. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And then John says, why? To fulfill the word of the Lord. That of all those you have given me, I've lost none but the son of destruction or the son of perdition. And so these events are unfolding according to the word of God. Now for Peter, there's a personal denial foretold in Mark 14, 30. And Jesus said to him, as I've already quoted, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. In Luke 22, 34, he says again, he said to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times or denied that you know me three times. In John 13, 37 through 38, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So when we witness the unfolding of this fulfillment of this prophecy or prediction of Jesus Christ, he already knows what's about to unfold in the life of Peter. And Peter, in, a, in his boldness, cannot believe what he's hearing. If all other the disciples fall away, not me. And so these are not contingent events. These events are unfolding as first and foremost, first and foremost ordained of God, decreed by God, but also predicted directly to Peter by Christ. So if there's a sifting, it begins with the word of God. Second involved in this sifting is there is an intercessory prayer, first for his disciples in John 17, 11, 15, and then also uh, particularly in verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He's already said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. I'm going away, and now my appeal, Father, is that you keep them now in your name in my absence. So there is an intercessory prayer on behalf of these disciples whom the world, whom God has decreed would flee from him in his suffering. 
And so the, just as the end was decreed, so was the intercessory prayer for them as well. In fact, I think it was critical to their being restored or brought back into the fellowship as well. So this is all unfolding in regards to their, their sifting and particularly for Peter. In verse 15, by the way, for his disciples, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is praying for the one that he is turning over, as it were, to their flesh to flee away in fear or, or to Satan himself to do the sifting. So Jesus is yielding them over into that hand or in those circumstances, but underneath praying for them and by doing so, assuring that not only Peter, but the disciples themselves would be restored at some point. That's part of the sifting, you see. That's critical. Because if he turns him over to sifting and says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you and I've given him permission to do so. And you're on your own. You better dig in hard, Peter. You better get in your Bible. You better get in prayer. You better, you better have your eyes wide open and be alert because you're on your own. It's not what he says at all. In fact, for all the disciples, he's praying that I'm not praying, Father, that you take them out of the world, but you leave them in the world, but keep them from the evil one, the one whom I'm giving permission now to sift you, Peter. So get this, this intercessory prayer and mediatorial role of Christ in the sifting is critical to the sifting. Otherwise, you don't survive it. And you won't either, by the way. You won't either because he's got your own fallen nature to work with, Satan does. I've got a heart that's deceitful and desperately wicked and he knows it. And he also knows how to exploit desperate, desperate and deceitfully wicked hearts. So he's got an ally in my flesh already in place. If there's not an intercession by Christ and a divine enabling by Christ, you and I and Peter and the disciples will fall to the temptations of the flesh and we will succumb to the sifting. And what will be left in us would just be chaff. There's intercessory prayer, particularly for Peter. I've already quoted in Luke 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But here's the, here's the contingency, but I have prayed for you. The implication here, he doesn't say, and I've decided to let him, but the implication of what he says afterwards implies that the permission had been granted. And you say, how could God do such a thing? <laughs> well, go figure Job out. Uh, go figure Paul out because Paul understood his thorn as a messenger from Satan. Not only that, in 1 Corinthians 5 of fornication and within the church, he actually cast one out to the devil as it were. His judgment was he ought to be cast out to the devil so that the devil might destroy the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So the Paul himself recognizes that the Satan is instrumental in the destruction of the flesh. And he was willing in that case to turn this one who was hard-hearted over to Satan so that he might destroy the flesh and, and the spirit be spared in the day of the Lord. And certainly we understand that Satan was given permission to come against Job, but with limitations. And so it is with Peter. I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So the prayer, the intermediary work of Christ 
is critical to the sifting. You don't get turned over to the sifting without the, without the prayer of Christ for the believer. So to me, that's the encouragement for Peter, but it's also the thing that ought to make Peter tremble because he's going to have to endure the sifting and all that's involved in that with the assurance that on the other end, the Father, Christ would bring him out and restore him to fellowship. So the, so the sifting comes by the word of God, by the decrees of God for the purposes of God. And it comes along with Christ's intercessory work on our behalf. Also involved in this sifting is a presumptuous declaration by Peter. Essentially, uh, it really struck me, but essentially Peter informs Jesus in this case. He informs him of his personal heart's resolve in Luke twenty two thirty three. But he says to him, Lord, I am ready to go both to prison and to death with you. In Mark fourteen twenty nine, Peter said to him, even though all others may fall away, yet I will not. One thing about the sifting and one of the steps in the sifting is that it comes against this reliance in the flesh. In fact, I think that's the point. In fact, Paul, when he talked about his thorn and the messenger of Satan given to him to buffet him so that he might not exalt himself above measure, understood that's exactly why he had the messenger of Satan. Listen, Paul had been caught up by the Spirit into the third heavens and seen things that were improper for him to even utter that I think he probably never did in his ministry. It revealed the fullness of what he was exposed to there. But apparently that in the mind of a fleshly man still in the flesh had the potential to exalt him above measure. So God in his mercy allowed Satan to send a buffeting messenger as it were to accomplish God's purpose in Paul's life to keep him humble and dependent upon Christ. And so at the end of that, having that thorn not removed, what does Paul say? I will therefore rather rejoice in my weakness because in that weakness, then I am made strong in Christ. I am not reliant because of this buffeting messenger upon myself and my flesh anymore. The messenger of Satan has accomplished the work of God to crush from me all dependence upon the flesh. And therefore, I will now be bold and strike out and speak truth in the power of Christ alone so that he may be glorified. So, my point is to say that involved part of the steps involved in the, in the sifting that he speaks of here is in that it displays or it illuminates our reliance upon the flesh. That's exactly what the sifting is for, by the way. I have no doubt, I've already said, that Peter, with all of his heart, intended to follow through on that. I believe Peter believed with all of his resolve that I don't care if everybody else runs away, I'm going all the way with you, Jesus. I believe he meant that with all of his heart. But I believe Jesus understood that he was relying on his own flesh and his own strength of will and perseverance to press through to that end. And Jesus was essentially preparing him for his apostleship and ultimate death on the behalf of Christ by removing dependence upon the flesh from him. In fact, I think it's why Peter was singled out as the one needing sifting. Because I think Peter was so bold and such a strong personality that what Peter needed most was to be pressed away from this reliance upon the flesh. The others would have their own trials and their own sifting in some ways. But Peter of all the disciples seems to be the one who was leading the way, the strongest in character by nature... And, that, and he's targeted directly here, it seems to me, 
to be pressing out this dependency on the flesh, preparing him for the ministry that would be ahead of him. So a sifting always involves an illumination of our dependence upon the flesh. Notice as well, it wasn't just his position of heart, but it was also uh, his willingness to even take up the sword. I've already read it in Luke, but also in Matthew 26. And behold, one of those who were, G- with, who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall die by the sword. And I love this. Jesus says to him as if, as if to say to Peter, I don't, need the fl- I don't need the help of your flesh. You know that, right? Do you not think that I cannot now appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's roughly, I think I've read 70,000 angels. Uh, Three of which brought destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah. Imagine 70,000 of them. Peter, I don't need your strength. In fact, your strength is what's going to It's what's causing you to have to be sifted, Peter. So put your sword away. Put it in there. Have your eyes open to the fact that your strength is not going to contribute to my ultimate victory. And if I needed any strength, I have access to far more than you possess. 70,000 angels to give a word. Peter, I don't need your strength. And I think the message to Peter was neither do you, Peter. In fact, what you need is the absence of your strength. You need to find weakness so that you might become strong, not the other way around. In every sifting as well, I think there is a series of denials as I've already shared. It's, it's complex sometimes to figure out how many denials. Were there only three? Were there more than three? How many people did he deny uh, Christ before? But as I've said, it seems pretty clear to me that there were at minimum three and probably only three. But at some point, that was set up and signified by Christ that once those had passed, then Peter would hear the rooster crow, whether it was the second time or the first time, then the rooster would crow in affirmation of what Christ had said. So in every sifting, there is a series of denials. I read from Luke and John, but let me read from Matthew 26, 69 through 74. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he'd gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. I thought when I read that, he must have been from North Ireland. But they understood the Galilean accent. Even the way you talk, you're not hiding the fact that you're a Galilean. Then he began to curse and to swear, I do not know the man. It's as if he said, get off of my back. And as soon as he said that, the rooster crows. So there is always involved in a sifting, a series of denials of of Christ. Um, I thought this was interesting, but three denials. Later on, we're going to look at three three statements by Jesus. But, But then I thought about why the three. It's as if, listen, Peter, you need to understand that when you deny you know me, 
three times. In essence, it is indicative that you have denied God. Father, Son, Spirit. Three times, Peter. Not just once. Three times. You reject Christ. You reject the whole of God. That's how weighty what he was doing was. And so the restoration involved the same thing. You receive Christ back. You love Christ. You love Christ. You love Christ. So he reverses the order. What you have denied three times indicating you have denied the whole of God in this denial. And in the restoration you've received back and been restored back into fellowship with the whole of God. Not just Christ the Son. Not just the Spirit. But Father, Son, and Spirit. So in every sifting, there is a series of denials. It may not be three in my case. It may be 20. It may be one. But there is a series of denials. It is whenever we make our exclamation and then the pressure comes on and we walk away from our exclamations or our declarations in regards to our own faithfulness because it exposes now our strength, which is little. And upon those denials and the exposing of that flesh, there is, a, I think, a spiritual probing, which is indicative, I think, by Luke's version. It is really an accommodation to Peter in the midst of Christ's own suffering. But in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, 61, it says, Whenever Peter heard the cock crow and he made his final denial, and the Lord apparently was in eye shot of Peter, and the Lord turns and looks at Peter. And we're not recorded that he says a single word to Peter. But I can imagine, given Peter's recognition of his own guilt, how piercing was that view of Christ who himself under suffering accommodated in that moment to look back to Peter. Maybe not a condemning, maybe a hopeful, maybe a, maybe a look that communicated to Peter that I'm watching you even when you've turned away from me. My eyes are upon you. Couldn't help but the, the old hymn, his eye is upon the sparrow. But maybe the eye of God now is upon the weak little sparrow, Peter, who is just denied he even knows the Lord. In whatever case, it is also an occasion to remind him. When he turns and looks at him, he reminds him. It says in the text that whenever the Lord, he heard the cock crow, that he was reminded by hearing that of what Jesus had said. It strikes me that, did he forget? I mean, that's really stunning. Jesus said to him, whenever he stressed his boldness and his own strength, Jesus said, will you follow me unto death? I'm telling you that before the cock crows, you're going to deny you even know me three times, Peter. I don't know that it doesn't seem like I would have forgotten that. In fact, I seem like I would have been on guard against denying him. But Peter seems to have set that aside and now he's being carried along by the strength of his own flesh. And in the denials, when Jesus, he hears the cock crow, when Jesus looks upon him, then all that comes flooding back into his mind. And what's the result of the flesh having been exposed in this point? By the probing, I think, ultimately of the Spirit of God, what results is the distressing shame. As I've already said in Luke 22, verse 61, 62, the Lord looked, turned and looked at Peter, excuse me, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Another gospel says he went out onto the porch outside of Annas and Caiaphas compound there, and he wept bitterly. I, I don't know that we could 
expound the depths of Peter's experience in that moment. It may be simple enough, it may be profound enough and simple just to say, having been reminded of that through this gaze of Christ and through hearing the cock crow and through the sovereign work of God in that instance, he re- realized the how fully he was relying upon his own strength. And in that moment, realizing that in those denials, my strength is nothing. And to be despised and to be rejected altogether. And I am ashamed that I have denied Christ relying upon my own strength. And so... In the process of this sifting, when the flesh is exposed and the spirit convicts of how reliant you were on the flesh, one of the results of that is you and I, and I think Peter, will feel a great shame. Not just because our neighbor's disappointed in us, by the way. Because if you remember, his neighbors ran away too. And they were frightened too. The the real shame is not that somebody knows a crack in our armor that they didn't know was there and I'm ashamed. Fathers, it's not that your children are ashamed of some action you took or mothers the same thing or wives and husbands. It's not the fact that another human being has recognized a flaw in you that you thought you had concealed. This is the fact that the Lord Himself by the spiritual gaze of truth and deity has exposed in you the utter, the utter, uselessness of your strength for the things of God. And that's the shame because you realize in that moment not only was I relying upon the flesh in my denials of Christ but I've been relying upon the flesh all my days and it is useless. That's the real shame. Let me say this morning Christian if you're relying upon your flesh then there's a sifting coming for you. There is a sifting scheduled for you in which circumstances are going to be demonstrated or or made instrumental in exposing your dependence upon that flesh. And when the divine light shines and you realize how much you have depended upon that, you will be ashamed. Especially if you're a Christian. Because in every moment that you have depended upon the strength of your flesh, you have denied the merit and you have diminished the merit of Christ's suffering upon the cross. You have diminished His glory by taking to yourself some strength of your own and living out a Christian life and honoring God fully in that life. So in the sifting, there's going to be shame, deep shame. But amazingly... There's also in the sifting, there's a promise restoration. Jesus had already told him in Luke 22, 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded, demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So underneath the prayers of Christ sustained faith through the sifting. You see that? Underneath is the prayers of Christ sustaining faith throughout the sifting. And then there's this implied hope and promise here, explicit I think, but at minimum implied that when you once return, you're coming back, Peter, in the weight of the shame you feel that is necessary now for your restoration and the future lying ahead of you. When you return, aren't you happy today that even though there's a sifting, 
There's also in the midst of it a promise of restoration for those on whose behalf Christ has interceded, first and foremost in salvation, but also in sanctification through his mediatorial work. I don't know about you, but I don't like the sifting. I don't like the sifting at all. But without it, I'm like that squirrel. I can read the word and I can look in the world and I, I can identify the adversary and I'm standing up tall. I'm bare, bare guaranteed alert on the adversary. There's no way he's getting me coming that way because I see him clearly. And all of a sudden, bang. Something was there that I wasn't aware of. And that's what took me down. But this promise is, it's going to take you down, Larry. In fact, when it takes you down, you're going to understand in that moment that there is nothing in my flesh good. Paul understood it. There dwelleth no good thing in my flesh. I am done with the flesh. It is not trustworthy, reliable in any circumstances. I throw myself entirely upon the life of Christ and union with Christ and the power of Christ in my life. There is a restoration. So with every sifting, there is a promise, rest, ref, restoration. It was foretold by Christ, but it was reaffirmed in the resurrection as well. When Jesus says in Mark 16 through 6, 6 through 11, and he says to them as they discovered he was risen from the dead, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. They, they announced to him, behold, here is the place where they laid him. But then the angel says, but go tell his disciples. I love this. And Peter. Peter was one of the disciples. Why not just say, go tell the disciples? Go, because Peter underwent the sifting. And this is a direct reference to the restoration promised in Jesus' comment to, Jesus, to Peter in regards to his sifting. When once you have returned, go back to your brothers and essentially minister to them there. So when he's announcing, the angel says, yes, you're looking for the dead Christ. He's not dead. He's risen. By the way, go back and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. And go have them to meet him. And also tell Peter, I want to meet him there as well. So the restoration is not only promised, but it's being fulfilled in this moment. I love this, but it's also affirmed by a longing for a renewed intimacy. In John 21, 4 through 7, I love this. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. You remember the disciples weren't sure what was happening there. And, and Peter, like always, says, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going fishing. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to go fishing. And so they all gather together and they go and return back to their former trade. And they're very well at home there and familiar with what it is to fish. So they're right at home where they were three years prior. But when the day was now breaking, as they were fishing, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet his disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, children, do you, do you not have any fish? I love the way he phrases that. He doesn't say, do you have any fish? It's almost like he said, you don't have any fish, do you? <laughs> you know why? Because I, I made you fishers of men. You're not going to be catching those kind of fish anymore. You don't have any fish, do you? Of course they don't. Then he says to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. He'd done that one other time, by the way, in his ministry with them. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And I love this. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, I think speaking of himself, said to Peter, it's the Lord. I think he remembered that instance there. 
early on in their ministry. And he said, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter had heard it, that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment and for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. He's getting ashore to Jesus. That longing for restoration with Christ, the one whom he had denied. It's amazing to me because I thought about this. You remember the last time Peter in relation to Jesus was in the sea? He was walking on it. You remember the seas were stormy and he says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. And the Lord says, come. And he steps out of the boat and the water doesn't do what the water normally does, which is swallow up things heavier than itself. And Peter is walking to the Lord across in the water. And all of a sudden, he takes his eyes off the Lord and looks around. And of course, the water begins to consume him. The Lord in his mercy lifts him back up and he says to him, oh, Peter, why did you doubt in that moment? This time, Jesus not bidding him to come. I'm going. I'm not looking to walk on water. I'm not looking for a miracle. That's the Lord on the beach. I'm going into the water and I'm swimming to the beach. Things are different for Peter now. He's already seen the miracle. He's already seen the miracle. The Lord is risen and the Lord has called for him. There's a, also a promised restoration of renewed commission. John 21, 15 through 17. You could preach on these verses alone. So when they had finished breakfast, which Jesus prepared for them, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said this the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, notice what he added this time. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And that's what I was speaking of earlier. That's the thrice reversal of the denials. He's receiving back into the fellowship of Christ, essentially. Peter, for every person of the Godhead you denied, you've just returned again. I ask you, do you love me once? Yes, I ask you, do you love me twice? Yes. I ask you, do you love me the third time? You said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I do. That's a restoration of everything that he had denied. He has received back again to himself. And on that basis, he tells him to go feed my lambs and shepherd my sheep and tend my lambs. So it's a renewed commission. In a, in a, in a sifting, there is that as well. When once the flesh has been destroyed and we become relied upon Christ, then there is a restoration of intimacy and fellowship with Christ. And upon that, there is a recommission for you to go out and, and do the tending, to disciple one another and to share the gospel. And I love this as well, but there's a renewed commission. But finally, in the, in the sifting, there is a new man who arises, or a new resolve, you might say. In John 21, 18 through 22, Jesus says this to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. John tells us that that was a commentary on the type of death Peter was to die. In fact, he says that. Now, that this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. That's a new man. 
You were ready to cut off the ear of a servant, take up your sword to defend Christ. Now Christ is telling you, Peter, when you were a young man, you were guided by the flesh. You, you put on your robes and you went wherever you want to. Things are different now, Peter. The flesh is gone. Now there is, there is a yielding and a living by my strength alone. And I'm telling you that as you do that faithfully, the day's coming when you, you'll be led away to where you don't want to go in your flesh. And in that moment, Peter, that's when you're going to understand why the flesh had to be destroyed. Because for you to be faithful unto death, there is no fleshly reliance in there whatsoever. You have to trust me beyond all things. I love it because Peter, still a little bit in the flesh, says to him, well, what about this one? He's talking about John. Okay, I see, I understand that, but what about him? And Jesus says to him plainly, what does it matter to you if, I, if he stays until I return? You follow me. And when I say he was a new man, that's what I mean. There is an individual calling of Christ into our life. He has called you, individual here, to be faithful. And if you say to him, well, what about Larry? Or what about, what about one of the elders? Or what about this deacon? Or what about this godly woman? And if Jesus would say to you the same thing, what does it matter to you if they remain till I return? I'm calling you to follow me. You, individually. See, all this, this is my point. All this was brought about in Peter, whom tradition says was crucified upside down because of his feelings of unworthiness to be crucified right side up like his Lord. All this came through the life of Peter through this ordained sifting. And my conclusion is, if, it, if that was necessary for Peter to be living in dependence upon Christ and the power of God in his life, is it any less needed in our lives? And if it is needed in our lives, is God any more reluctant to do it in our lives than in the life of Peter? His purpose for Peter and for us ultimately was that we might be transformed to the image of Christ and therefore glorify Him. And if the sifting is a necessary part of extinguishing in us a reliance upon our flesh so that we might become more Christ-like, you can guarantee that there is a sifting ordained for you and I. And you may be in it right now. And you may be in it Monday morning. And you may be in it five years from now. But you won't enter into the kingdom relying upon the strength of your flesh and so in some ways, the sooner and the better. And may God be merciful in the sifting. And may we hold to the promise that as believers, we will be restored to a right fellowship on the other end of that. You know what that takes? That takes my desire to be that more than the comfort I have right now. If that's not, if that's not important to me over there, I don't put up with no sifting over here. I'm not going to deal with any inconvenience whatsoever or any dying to self or any scrutinizing heart work that God may bring about by spirit because I like it here more than I like the potential over there until that becomes the desires of my heart, this Christ-likeness and ultimate fellowship with God. Until that is the overwhelming yearning of my heart, I will give up nothing in this world that brings me comfort. And I will feed the flesh all of my days unless I find a greater satisfaction and joy in Christ. And that's what the sifting is. That's what Peter's was for. And that's what God has ordained them in our lives for as well. Whatever uh, our thorn may be, as Paul says, may we understand its purpose and, and rather rejoice 
in the weakness of the flesh that it's exposed so that we might be driven from reliance upon the flesh to trust fully in Christ and he in our lives. Stand with me this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I think I've gone through some siftings of my own. Certainly nothing to the degree of Peter's and far as intensity, I'm sure, but but Lord, with trembling, we thank you for those moments. The author of Hebrews promises us that you discipline the ones whom you love. And so, Father, um, someone has joked, you must really love me a lot. But Father, thank you for those moments that you are, through circumstances, through life in general, pressing out of us a reliance upon the flesh so that we might live fully in Christ, trusting in him by his power and his glory in our lives. And Lord, I thank you that you are, have and are interceding for us that we may not be given over to the evil one as believers, but that the evil one certainly may be instrumental in our sanctification. So Father, with your permission and with your restraint and with your mercy, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish the work that you've began in us so that you may make us fit in Christ for the kingdom. Have your way in these moments of invitation in the hearts of those who are in the room today. Father, speak by your word, by your spirit to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.